So we've been in the, the book of Revelation for several weeks now. We're on the, we're on the sixth of seven churches in, uh, in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters. Jesus uh, wrote this, these letters to his churches, churches just like ours. Um, and, and so far we've encountered five different churches We've encountered the church at Ephesus, who had, who had found its theological footing, but lost its love. We've seen Smyrna, who was afflicted, but faithful. Pergamum was a church, was in the world, but the world was getting into the church. Thyatira had love, but they tolerated too much. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but no reality of being alive. And this morning, we get to visit a church in Philadelphia. So all those other churches are in Turkey. So is Philadelphia. We're, we're, don't think Pennsylvania. Think Philadelphia in modern-day Turkey, f- former Asia Minor, the city of brotherly love. And this church was a weak but faithful church. It's a weak but faithful church. You know, um, in, a, in 17 AD, a massive earthquake hit the region where this church and especially Sardis was. And they were most affected by this earthquake. They were, uh, all these churches are in that region, but these churches suffered the most. And, and Pliny said, he said, it's a remarkable disaster that made a remarkable impact on the contemporary world as the greatest in human history. So up, up until this point, this was maybe the most significant event that happened in this region. You think of the, the earthquake that has happened in, happened in Turkey recently and how destructive that was. That, that is what happened in 17 AD. The church in Philadelphia and the people in Philadelphia, just like you, uh, who if you experience disaster, uh, you, you feel weak and shaken, and you don't exactly know how to, how to handle it. How does that affect your faith? How does that affect your, your strength? How does that affect your witness? And, you know, during that time, the, the Roman emperor Domitian, uh, he, uh, excuse me, the Roman emperor at that time actually cut their taxes and, and, and was kind to them and helped them get back on their feet to rebuild. And then in 92 AD, the Roman emperor Domitian made them cut down half of their grapevines. Uh, and this city was dependent on wine and its economy, and it, it was a significant blow. So they had this earthquake, they had government interference with their economy, and they had what uh, John calls the synagogue of Satan, Jewish people who were not actually part of God's people, telling them they weren't allowed to worship the true God in the true way unless they bowed to, to Judaism. And so just think of what it would be like. You're not, you're not able to, to worship with God's people or you're, you're told you're not really welcome into the temple, the synagogue. Uh, the emperor is messing with your economy uh, and, and you're still, you're still experiencing the after effects of, of, of the earthquake from 17 AD. It's not fully rebuilt. You're, you're feeling weak and without strength. And they would have been, like us, tempted in their weakness to wonder if God loved them. To wonder if God was punishing them. To wonder, you know, 
All these other Christians, all these other Christian churches seem to be flourishing and they're, they're, you know, their houses are packed with people and their witness, they're, in their witness, they're successful. But look at us, we're weak. And yes, they were weak. And yes, we are weak. But like Smyrna, they are a church, Philadelphia, about which Christ has nothing bad to say. There's no condemnation for them. Yes, they are weak. That's not apparently their fault. So a question I want us to ask this morning is how do you live as a strong Christian or a strong Christian church when you have little strength, when you have little power? How, how do you live as a strong Christian? How do, you, how do you maintain the faith and persevere to the end and, and do all the things that Jesus wants you to do when you don't have a lot of power, when you're weak? Well, I think the answer to that question is to get a change of perspective about Jesus. And that's what he's doing for all of these churches. Each of these churches has a, has a specific need. And Jesus is giving them a divine perspective, a heavenly perspective about himself and about themselves and how, how the future uh, is going to play out. He's giving them a divine perspective and he commends them for holding fast to the word, for keeping his word. Changing your perspective about Jesus is connected to holding on, to keeping Jesus' word. So in order to patiently endure and persevere, one must have a heavenly perspective. And Jesus gives us that heavenly perspective once again in Revelation 3, 7 through 13 that Bonnie read for us. And we, we may not know if an earthquake is coming, might destroy our city. We don't know if a government will impose taxes so heavy on us that our economy will crash. But we can just be certain of one thing. Jesus holds authority over salvation, our, our present salvation and our future. Jesus holds authority over our present salvation. And he says, and you can see it in chapter 3, verse 7, he has the keys of the house of David. He, when he opens, no one can shut it. And when he shuts it, no one can open. Jesus has the keys to his house. He has the authority over your salvation. And to the church of Philadelphia, he writes, get a divine perspective about what, how things really are. Though you are weak, he has opened the door of salvation so in order to live a strong Christian life, you have no strength. You must have the right perspective about Jesus. So in verses 1, uh, 7 through 8, we see that Jesus has authority over present salvation. He has authority over his house. And he says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, I'm just struck again. Jesus writes words to churches, to people like us, to Christians like you. They were sitting in, in, in a church just like you, listening to this. And this is a letter written just to them. And Jesus is writing this letter to them, but he's also writing it to you, Branch Church. You Christians, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, little strength. I know you're weak, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
And Jesus wants them to know that he's the one that has the power over salvation and no earthquake, no government, no religious group can tell you that the door is shut to you. Only Jesus can do that. And this this phrase, the keys to the house of David, is an allusion to Isaiah 22, 22. And you don't have to turn there, but you can just mark it as a cross-reference. And Isaiah 22 is a prophecy about this man named Eliakim. God was coming to the, to, to the steward of the house, and I'm, his name starts with an S, I'm forgetting it right now, I think it's, it's Shebna or something like that. And God is taking the keys from the steward and giving them to Eliakim. It's kind of like the, you know, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, the, you know, the keys from the house of Gondor are passing to the, to the real king. And Eliakim is getting them. And the point of the, uh, of the passage here quoted is that Eliakim is, giving, giving, is given the complete political authority over the house of David, over God's people, Israel. And he was now a pointer to Jesus Christ who was given universal authority over the house of David, the kingdom of God. He says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. So Eliakim is, is getting this privilege. It's, it's, it's being taken from the steward, given to Eliakim, but it's not finally for Eliakim. It is actually Eliakim is pointing to Jesus. And now in Revelation 3, Jesus is telling us, I am actually the real Eliakim. I have the keys of the house of David, and when I open, no one can shut in. When I shut, no one can open. Jesus has complete sovereignty over the door into the tabernacle, the house of David, into into his kingdom, into his house, and when he opens it, no one can shut it. And when he closes it, no one can open It's Jesus, not religious or pious people that have authority over who can enter the door to his house. This door, verse eight, is opened. Do you you see who the door is opened to? Is it open to the strong? Is it open to those who are uh, something in this world? Is it open to the church that is packed? Is it open to the church that is successful in evangelism? No, this door is open to the weak. Um, Philadelphia, most scholars think this, you have little power, mostly means that they were small in number, small in influence. But their strength was not the determiner of the entrance. We are invited to Jesus' house not based on us, but based on him and what he has done. Maybe you're evangelizing someone even now. And, and, and you need to be reminded that Jesus doesn't just accept the strong ones. Jesus doesn't just accept the, the good ones. Jesus accepts all of those who will bow their knee to him, admitting their weakness and, and entering that door. And Jesus opened the door. Uh, apparently the Philadelphians had a, 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 the right perspective on Jesus because he says that they kept his word. I'm opening a door to you because you've kept my word. And later on he'll say, hold fast to my word because I'm coming soon. Hold fast to it. And they had, they've, they held fast like a, a running back in football, right, who's, who's, who's approaching the line 
And usually, have you ever noticed the running backs are a lot smaller than like the defensive linemen? The, the 300-pound guys that are trying to take that ball away from him. And, and, and like a running back, they've kept his word. They're, they're, they haven't let it fumble to the ground. And, and they're, they're going on. They're pressing towards the goal, the, the, the touchdown. And, and, and even though they are weak, most running backs are weak, so that's how the that's how the illustration breaks down. However, even though they are weak, he says, you have held on to my word. And did you notice that how they did not, how they held on to his word? By not denying his name. They did not deny his name. This was a, a, the sign of true strength. Not strength according to the world, but it was, it was what Jesus was looking for. You know, most of us probably think of this open door as an open door for evangelism or missions, an open door for the word. And actually, I do think that's what it means. But, but I think Jesus having the keys and holding the keys and opening the door to them is the motivation for their evangelism, for them to enter the door, for them to open the door and, and invite other people through that. So, so the surety that even though they're weak, Christ has invited them through the door, not because of anything good they've done, is their motivation, their security to invite other people in. And I do think, and Philadelphia was known as a missionary city. It had an open door, and, and the missionary city had to do politically with, with Hellenism and, 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 and promoting Rome and all that, but it, it was a strategic place for, for, for missions work. And I think John and Jesus and through John is picking up on that and he's saying, I have an open door for you. Because you're secure and because you've held on to my word, you're in the door, invite other people through the door. 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Paul, Paul talks about, uh, the, oh, he uses this phrase, the uh, open door. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, uh, back in verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so Paul, Paul is telling the, the, the people that he's going to stay in Ephesus because he has opportunity to present the gospel he has opportunity to, to evangelize. And it doesn't mean that a lot of people were coming to faith. It means that he had, he had an opportunity to share the, the good news of Jesus. In fact, this is one of his prayer requests to the Colossians. At the end of the book of Colossians, in 4.3, uh, Paul tells the Colossian Christians. This, so it's like he's writing from prison, and he's saying, I have some prayer requests for you. And what might you think he asks for? What would you ask for if you were in prison? To, to be released from prison, right? Am I the only one or are you there too? Am I not the only one? Please pray that I'm released from prison. Please pray that I have favor with the governors. What does he pray for? Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door. For the prison? No, for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Open a door for the word. Paul is bound, but the gospel is not bound. It's new opportunities. The prison presented him new opportunities and an open door, even though the doors were closed to him and he was chained under house arrests. He's praying for an open door. 
Why could he do that? Why would he do that? He's so secure that he has entered the house of God. Jesus has the keys. And when he opens, no one can shut it. You may be weak. You may be in prison. God said, I have an open door. This is what I want because my, this is the heavenly perspective. I, my kingdom is coming. I, 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 this, is, this, is, this is what I'm doing on the earth. I'm, I'm making my name great. And even though you, Philadelphia, you, Branch Church, are weak, you're small in numbers, you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot of influence, I have an open door. The keys to the house. But how could they be sure that Jesus really felt this way about them? How, how, could, they be, how could they be sure that Jesus felt love for them and wanted them to be secure, let alone wanted to motivate them for missions? Well, he, he says, by giving them a little lesson on who he is. Who are these words coming from? They're coming from Jesus, who is the Holy One and the True One. So, if this is true, and Jesus has the kind of power, how do the Philadelphian Christians know that Jesus is not just arbitrary or capricious about who he lets in? How do they know if he will use his power for good or for ill? Well, because he said, I am the Holy One. This is an illusion, a, a, a quotation you know, from Isaiah. And every time Isaiah uses the word, the, whole, the Holy One of Israel, it's referring to Yahweh. And now he's saying Jesus is Yahweh. He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who is self-existent, pre-existent. He's eternal. He is that one, the Holy One of Israel. How, how, do, they, how do we know he will do this? He's the Holy One. And he's the true one. He's the one who has the power of salvation, who holds the keys of salvation. He holds the keys of hell and death, of, of judgment. He also holds the keys of salvation because Jesus is true. If you flip to chapter six, we'll see here at the end when judgment is coming on the earth, what do the people say? The martyrs of the church, they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're asking the question, but they trust the one who is holy and true. In his timing, it will come. In Revelation 19, verse 2, he says, For at, at, at the end, when all of heaven is rejoicing, and there's a, a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just. True and righteous are your judgments, your decisions. You judge the right way. You are true and holy and just. How do they know? How do you know? that this door is open to you and it won't shut on you. It won't be like a psych, you can't really come in because he's holy and he's true. Seeing Jesus this way changes our perspective. It is Jesus and his character who guarantees the promise. He's the holy and true one. He's the just one. Friends, you may feel weak and actually be weak. 
Your, your presentation of the gospel like mine most often feels like a failure. It feels like nothing is happening and, and, and there are, there are no, there's no follow through. And, and maybe even my presentation itself is not very good. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. Is that what Jesus is saying is success? Success is just sharing the gospel, friends. The, the open door, taking the open door, praying for the open door, praying for boldness and clarity to just present the message and, and leaving the results up to him. So are you so in love with Jesus, this holy and true one, but you can't help but share him all the time? The only failure in evangelism is when we don't do it. And I'll be honest, I fail all the time. I fail to speak God's name to people in hope because I love them all the time. Why? Because I fear man, because I fear my weakness. But Jesus wants us to be so in love with the holy and true one that he just, he just bounces off our lips. One of the speakers uh, told uh, a story uh, about how he was traveling, ended up in France, and in, in France he... Uh, well, I don't know where he was, but he, he saw uh, Lance Armstrong, and uh, Lance Armstrong was in the airport, and he, told, he went up to Lance Armstrong and was like, hey, I, I saw you, the Tour de France, and Lance Armstrong, he looked at him, and he, and he said, uh, uh, well, how, you know, he said his kids were with him, and Lance Armstrong said, how are your kids? Because if you know Lance Armstrong, he, he, you, know, you know what happened to him. He, he was devastated that his actions of, of doping would have affected this man's kids. And, and, the, and the guy said, um, you know, Mac Stiles said, you know what, in that moment I didn't tell him the gospel like I should have. It was a failure. But it, it, what that says to us is though even in our failures, Jesus is saying there's open doors all over the place and let's walk through them. Let's ask for forgiveness when we don't say it the right way or when we don't say it at all or when we're ashamed to speak his name. Uh, but, but go on. Share, share the failures and the successes. Jesus is saying there's an open door. He, he not only has authority over his house, friends, he also has authority to make all things right. Jesus has authority over the future, so in order to live in a weak world but live as a strong Christian, how, how are we to do that? Change our perspective about Jesus. He has authority over our present salvation. He also has authority over the future. He has authority over the future. He's going to reverse the current drama. He's going to reverse what's happening right now. My maternal grandfather uh, died on this day in 2020. Um, my grandpa was one of the weakest Christians I know. Only, maybe, I, maybe I'm weaker than him, but he, he struggled with depression he struggled with mental health issues. He struggled with knowing whether Jesus actually loved him. Uh, 
my grandfather wanted to be forgiven by Christ. But he never, knew, he never quite was sure. But he kept holding on to the word. He kept holding on. He kept going back to Jesus time and time again. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. He held on to the word. And as far as I know, he entered into eternity as a Christian. And when he saw Jesus, the heavenly perspective became reality. Jesus is reversing the current drama. He is making all things new. And, and my grandfather got to see face to face. It was like having the, the colorblind glasses put on for the first time. And he got to see I was always secure in Christ. He opened the door and he wouldn't shut it even though I was afraid he would. Friends, for the church in Philadelphia, the synagogue of Satan was stiff arming them. You can't come into the fellowship. You, you can't come in here. And now Jesus is reversing that drama. In verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, the, the, those who are of the accuser of the brethren, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. He's gonna make them actually, through the witness of the weak Philadelphian Christians, Come down, come and bow down before their feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And most commentators think that this is them coming to Christ. Christ will make known to even the synagogue of Satan that he loves these weak Philadelphian Christians, and the synagogue of Satan is going to come and bow down in true worship to Christ. Jesus is making all things new. You don't have to worry about it. Whatever's disappointing you, whatever you, you know, the, the future holds for you, it's, it's uncertain and you don't know and you worry about it. Jesus is making all things new. He's making things right. Christ is going to keep the Philadelphian Christians from the hour of trial. You know, the running back who, who, who tries to hold onto the ball, sometimes drops the ball. Jesus never drops the ball ever. He doesn't. He keeps it. And because these Philadelphians have kept the world word, even in a weak way, he is going to save them from the hour of trial. He's going to save them from, from the trial that is coming. Now, I just have to quickly say that many of us have seen this as a text to prove the rapture, that Jesus is going to rapture the church out of the world, and they'll be saved from the great tribulation. Now that's possible, and if you believe that, that's totally fine. We can totally, we can disagree about it, and that's, that's fine. You may be right, and I may be wrong. But while it could mean that I, the church is gonna be raptured out of the great tribulation, I don't specifically think, at least this text says that. God has promised his people in other times that he would, he would not deliver them from suffering, but, but be with them through suffering. So in this instance, I think it might mean that he will be with the church in Philadelphia in their hour of trial that is coming on the rest of the earth dwellers. That he will persevere, he will preserve them. He will help them persevere to the end. And the same trial that will punish those who reject Christ will, will, will be a trial that brings the Philadelphian Christians closer to God. Friends, Jesus prayed this very thing in John 17. 
I, I do not pray for those in the world. I'm not praying that you take them, that's the Christians, my disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And wouldn't this, wouldn't this be a comfort? Wouldn't this be a comfort to our Chinese brothers and sisters, our, our African brothers and sisters who are, who are suffering under the penalty of death for, for meeting together? Those who currently suffer greatly for bearing witness to the name of Christ. He didn't promise to take them out of the world, but that they would be kept from the evil one. And so they are. It's a shift in, in mindset. But how are they kept? Some of them may even die in suffering. Jesus re- returns, promises to return. Jesus returns to the promise of the house of David. So he, he shifts the imagery to, to the temple here. To those who are weak and small and insignificant, to those who suffer in this life for being a Christian, he says, hold on to what you have. Why? Because there is coming a day when Jesus will make all things right. He has control of the future. He has sovereign authority over the future. And, and he will... He will prove this by allowing you to enter into the temple. He will will show you this control by finally keeping the covenant promise of making all things new when he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. In verse 12, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The way we conquer is through death, friends. It's, it's ironic. Conquer This conquering here is ironic. We conquer through death and through the death of the Lamb. Death is ultimate weakness. But our ultimate weakness will, will lead us to, the pillar of, to, to be a pillar in the temple of God. It's just an image of always being with God. Never shall he go out of it. No one, will, no one will open the door and kick you out of the temple. Those who conquer will have his name on them. It will be like pillars in the church of God and And the city, the name of the city of the new God will be on them. So how does a church, a Christian church, and a Christian live as a strong Christian when they have little strength? Keep the word. Keep the word. Hold on to it. Don't let go of it. And it's keeping the word about Jesus. Why? Because he has authority over salvation over your present salvation, and over your future. Friends, he, he illustrates that to us in the Lord's table, where Jesus laid down his life. He, he came from glory, and in, in weakness, he gave up his life for his people. He for their present salvation, but also to secure their future. Jesus gave up his his body and his blood for you. 
He, he, he gave up his, his life for you. And when we, when we come to the table as Christians, because this doesn't make you a Christian, but when we come to the table as Christians, we're expressing that our only hope in life and in death is in the one who became weak so we could become strong. He died. The Lord of glory came and took on flesh and came and had to sleep and he had to eat and he had to do all the things that humans had to do. And, and he died. And, and, and the Greeks thought this was foolishness because it was weak. Gods don't become weak, but Jesus became weak for you and for me. And as we take the Lord's table together, we're, we're saying we're taking the weak one to ourselves because we're weak. But in our weakness, we become strong. In, in, in his weakness, we become strong because he overcame death. He rose again and he lives forevermore. So our Lord Jesus gave up his body for you. He gave up his life, his life's blood for you. And we're going to take communion in a, in a few moments. Um, I just want to, to tell you that if you have never received Christ, if you think, man, this, this is a weird thing you're talking about. But what, what do you mean? In weakness, you become strong. I just encourage you to talk to uh, the, someone who brought you, or I would love to talk to you if, you if you if you want to talk through what the gospel means. But as we turn our our, our attention towards communion, we, we just want to want to want to invite you that if you are a Christian who has been baptized and, and in a good relationship with the church, we invite you to come. But if that if that's not you, that's okay. You're still welcome, and we invite you to reflect during this time. And we'll, we'll come down and we'll, we'll take communion together um, after, I, after I pray and we sing a song.